This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. The mix of culture is, it's what nourishes us. It's what making us having new idea, you mix flavor, you learn new things from people, and that's a good part. Nothing makes Chef Lucille Plaza happier than food that is perfect, perfectly sourced and perfectly cooked. Lucille, who grew up in Paris, knew she wanted to be a chef when she was 10 years old. And at 17, she apprenticed in many of France's greatest restaurants, including the revered Taivon. Now, she's the executive chef of an acclaimed restaurant in New York City, Le Coq Rico. And everyone is raving about her food. Lucille believes there is a certain feminine mystique in her cooking, but she believes that her stubbornness and being a great team player is the key to her success. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Lucille Plaza, it is such a joy to have you with me today. You are a very esteemed chef in New York City and by way of France, and we've never met before. I was so excited that you were going to be with us today because I'm dying to hear your story. You're very young. And yet you have worked in some of the finest kitchens in the world, primarily in France and and now in New York. I understand that you wanted to be a chef since you were 10 years old. Is that true? Is it true? (laughs) I don't really know why. I think it was because my grandma's. But I know I told my parents I I wanted to be a chef. Mm. And then when I had to take the decision, what do you do late, later, you know, on the college and everything? No, I still want to go to culinary school. So you knew right away. Well, you know, I knew kind of young too, but we each have such different stories. And that's what this show is all about, really. So you were 10 years old. Let's go way back. And you are living where? I'm living suburb Paris. I grew up there. My family, grandparents, are we are all around from suburb Paris. Mostly we grow all there. Then I decided I wanted to cure high school. Then became the challenge. Uh-huh. Because my parents are not from the industry. They don't know anything about it. <laughs> so they jumped with me a bit in the story, which was not easy in every part. But we f- first found apprentice chef. Yes. Which guided me to find a good school. So you became an apprentice first, but you were so young. I found... And you're a woman. (laughs) I was 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 15 years old. And uh, we found him by a contact of my family. He was a 2 4 Michelin. So it means it's like... For him, he's like not a star. He's not a Michelin star, but he's just a great under. And he was making all homemade. Everything I, was homemade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I this was me, a restaurant in Paris. Suburb Paris. In a suburb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he told me, no, if you have to go to a culinary school, you're going to go to the good ones or nothing. 
Great advice. So he helped us fund the school. I get in the three of them. I choose one. I choose the first one. I get uh, accepted, actually. Well, Lucille, actually, I, I'm not familiar with the system there. Uh, are there really three or more great cooking schools in, in France or in no. Paris? Yeah, no. way more. But way let's more. say mm. in Paris, we have three big ones. Yeah, it's Médéric, Ferrandi, and EMPTH. EMPTH is a complicated uh, anagram. An anagram. Okay. To or say, an, initials for... Uh, yeah. Yes, okay. And Ferrandi? Ferrandi is yes, a very famous one. one. Mm-hmm. Ferrandi is very famous, and Médéric was on the big ones too. But then you have a lot of very good school. You have a Paul Bocuse school. Yes. Which is... Amazing, but the good thing in France, we have culinary school free. You go culinary to culinary school is free. Yes, this is so fascinating to me. I know nothing about this. So, How great! Maybe this explains something about why French food is so famous, and and they, they uh, endorse it. Obviously, this is really a very important career path. It's part of the culture, and it's for free. But of course, you pay all the thing on the side, but you don't pay the school. You have a big opportunity to go in the best one without being in a scholarship or something like that. I found him, and then it became a very good thing because he was doing everything. Everything. He was by himself and his wife on the dining room. Mm-hmm. That's a classic old-fashioned uh, restaurant, isn't Chef it? Chef owner. Yes. He, he was coming from La Serre. He worked at uh, Tuileries. He worked in a big place in Paris, Star Michelin. And he had this mentality saying, no, I will do everything. Even if I don't do a lot of cover, I will do everything by myself. Oh, this is so beautiful. What an education. So you went to school, but he was really the, your he master teacher. He was the teacher. one who teach me the thing. And he give, you know, he gives a passion because he loves it so much when he gives mm. you the passion. Even if before I met him, I wanted to be a chef, but I didn't know anything. <laughs> I didn't know any name of chef. I didn't know anything about uh, culinary, nothing. And he bring, you know, he teach me. We was uh, cooking a rack of lamb in the stem of the pine tree. Oh, really? We okay. was. I have to clean the wild boar legs once. You, that was you had to clean uh, the legs of a wild boar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a bit crazy. <laughs> we was doing the ice cream bread, uh, you know, a marshmallow, all this kind of thing. We was doing it ourselves. Everything. That's is very cool, actually. It was very cool. What a great way to learn. I'm also very uh, impressed and touched about your parents uh, really jumping on board and supporting this crazy love of yours uh, without even really knowing where it would lead. And of course, it has led to more and more fantastic opportunities for you. You are the chef at a very well-known restaurant in New York called Le Coq Rico. And earlier I asked you, am I pronouncing it correctly and what it means? So help me. I have to do this song right now. <laughs> you don't. You can do this song right now if you want to. No. But so what is the name? Le Coquico will refer to the sound the cock the rooster does in the morning when he wake up, which is not the same as American one. <laughs> oh, did he wakes up earlier? Huh? Does he wake up earlier? The one in- I don't know, oh. but they don't do the same sound. Maybe, maybe it's <laughs> a jet lag with a difference. <laughs> and yeah, he's also we call it the bistro beautiful bird. So the restaurant Le Cocrico means the bistro of the beautiful bird. It's a beautiful restaurant, the only one of its kind in New York, but its specialty is chicken. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the, the concept? 
So I would say the speciality is not chicken, it's poultry. Ah, okay, thank you. So we can turn around guinea fowl, duck, all bird you can find. And it's a very interesting because the research has been made to have bird were equally raised, range raised. It's free range, you free range. It's a very, very mm-hmm. good uh, product because animals are well treated and it's important. We have this culture in France. It's not the culture here. It's harder to find it here. That is in France. We have a lot of little farmers in France who can find that product. It's a bit, yeah, it's a bit, a, a little bit different. So I think it's one of a kind. It's a bit exceptional because you can eat a Brunelandaise where you can never eat that in New York, except if you go to the farmer right away and find the bird by yourself. Mm. Is it very challenging to get the products though? Because they're so exclusive in some ways to France or is agriculture now so different in America that it's become easier to find great suppliers for these things? So the work on the first sourcing was a big work for the... The sourcing of the The sourcing product. for the people who opened the restaurant. It's hard to find farmer who does all things in the good way. Mm-hmm. And I think for them also it's a great challenge because you don't make as much as money when you raise a bird for 120 days instead of raising it for 30 days. Yes, but what a difference it makes in, in the taste, the texture. And in a funny way, you're you're like a brilliant musician because it's about timing. Obviously, it's about taste and flavor, and, and I definitely want to talk about that later. But it's the timing of the cooking of poultry that makes it so uh, essential and exquisite. And obviously, you're a master of that. But Lucia, I want to go back to your childhood. All right, let's go to your kitchen. So you're, you're in Paris, and you mentioned something about grandmothers. And what's your earliest food memory, if you can go back? My grandmother was making very, very good food, both of them. Now, I understand you're, you also, one parent is Spanish and one is French. Yeah. So this is already fascinating, right? <laughs> so my French grandma was making very traditional dishes. So she cooked the cassoulet. Very, she cooked a lot, a lot of dishes, like familial dishes. We can share. So I remember she did paella. She was doing cassoulet. She did le poto, le pulopo. It was a, like a big chicken soup. A big chicken soup, <laughs> and we was eating that like all the winters. Mm. And but she teach us how to eat asparagus. Mm. I eat as white asparagus only in my grandma's house. I never eat that before. You white know, somewhere in my parents' house. No, my grandma's house. We was eating white asparagus, squabs. She was going to the market. The squabs, mm. we roasted everything like this. She was doing it. So that's the interesting part. She was making crepes. All pastry kind, because of course we were kids, sending us packages with beignet, apple beignet, which is like Ooh. a kind of donuts for yes, you. but much better. She was sending it by the, by the mailbox, roll it in a shoes box with a lot of protection because it was still hot, so we were smelling everywhere. So she would make apple beignets, she would wrap them up and put them in her shoe box and, and send them to you? And us for, by the <laughs> mails, so that we could eat that. So that's the kind of things. For my grandmother, she died when I was younger. I was about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. But she was making the best churros in the world. I never, never, never found churros 
Oh, true. As, so this was your Spanish grandmother. Uh-huh. Never as good as her. So can I you describe churros for people who maybe have not had them before? So churros, it's a Spanish, let's say, biscuit. It's done with flour, salt, and water. No sugar? Not on the basic one. Ah. It's very, very, it's very cheap, you know? It's mm-hmm. for poor people. She was making brown and very tiny. And I remember because... In the kitchen, she wa- she had this machine to turn to make the churros come long, you know? Yeah, they're long and they, they, uh-huh. they have like uh, little striations like on They look them. like a star a little bit. Yeah. But she always tried on the pan first, in the pan fried, before she put it in the in the fryer. Mm-hmm. So she was trying, so we was lucky to get the little piece she was making the <laughs> in the pan fried with my brother and sister when we was uh, running in the kitchen. So that was for us all this like Sunday afternoon because they was living close by, going oh. to eat the churros, hot chocolate and churros in the Sunday afternoon. And you dunk the churros in uh-huh. the hot chocolate. That sounds pretty divine. But we never, after that, I never tried to make it because I think after, if you lose the memory of, uh, you know, scared to be disappointed. <laughs> so that's <laughs> why you never made it again. Good. I never made it yet. No one in my family made it after my grandma died. Oh, that's a very beautiful connection, right, to food and memory and mm-hmm. smell and taste and, and emotion. Uh, but perhaps you will. And I don't know if you realize you did say you haven't made them yet. Uh-huh. So when we come back, we're going to hear more about her passion and love of her grandmothers and how that led to her remarkable career in food. And Lucille, do you have any cooking tips, a cooking tip to share? So, for example, when I cook my seafood, shrimp or whatever, we let them marinate it in olive oil and herbe de Provence. Before you cook it? After we cook them, like that, we, de- we boil them. You boil them in a nage, in a courbouillon, and then we let them marinate it in that because like that they get a very nice flavor of it reminds me like the sun, the salad of France, the olive oil, garlic, herb de Provence. It brings a very sunny part. Even if you eat it just like this, without searing it or whatever, it brings sun in the plate. What a wonderful cooking tip. After you steam or boil your seafood, you would marinate it in olive oil, garlic, and herb de Provence. Give it a try and pass it along. Lucille, so we've established that you fell in love with food when you were really young and that both grandmothers were very influential. Uh, You knew you wanted to be a chef at 10, and then when you were 17, you went to work for famous male chefs in in France and went to cooking school. But I think it was 2014, you came to America. That takes a lot of courage. So what what was your goal? What, What inspired you to come here? What did you need to do next to satisfy your own urges? So first, I need to to see something else, to go out of my cocoon. It was my first thing. Go out from the cocoon from Paris. Ah, the cocoon. The cocoon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, we are so comfortable in the kitchen at the end that, you know, you speak your language, but you turn around the same thing. You have no culture. 
coming in because everyone is learning your culture and not the opposite way. So we had a lot of people from different countries, Italy, Japan, other things, but we never try to learn their culture. They always learn our, and we never make this effort. And then you're like, okay, I need to change. I decided to come to USA. It was a big challenge. My English was very poor, very, very poor. <laughs> That can't But be easy. I had to change myself and I improve it. And I decided that I will learn the other culture. So I became friends with a lot of people, Jamaican, Filipino, Mexican. You have so much culture in the USA, in the kitchen over here, in the industry. It's amazing. I love it now. And I don't feel myself going back because of that, because the mix of culture is, it's what nourishes us. It's what's making us having new idea. You mix flavor. You learn new things from people. And that's a good part. You mentioned my favorite word, which, of course, is nourish, because that's really, as chefs, what we're all doing. But thank you for mentioning it. So what did you do? Did you get a job right away? Where did you go? I came with a job. That was a good part. My chef from Le Taiwan, Chef Soliveres, had some contact in New York. In did the did you work at Taiwan? Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> okay. So when I said you worked at really famous French restaurants, I wasn't even sure which. Well, that's very impressive. Were there uh, many people in the women in the kitchen there? One. Was it you? No, no we one was more. Okay. one in I was alone and we had one more before we we finished one moment together and then I was alone again. Very, very impressive. Okay, so you, so this wonderful man from Taiwan helped you connect to your first job in New York. Yes, with the group Alain Ducasse. Alain Ducasse, another very, very famous chef. <laughs> Which was, it's a big group. So I came a little bit with the idea of leaving the two-star Michelin, leaving the star Michelin, and just going back to the regular kitchen. After a year, they proposed me a position of sous-chef. And then... At Benoit. At Benoit. And at this point, you're doing very classic French food or more bistro or more high-end. How would you describe the food you were cooking? More bistro, mm -hmm. very classic, like we were doing the quenelle de brochet. Yes. It's like a pike quenelle with a bisque sauce, like lobster sauce. We were doing uh, calf liver, which is the, almost no one does it in New York. I Calf's think. liver? Uh -huh. I know. We love it, and it's so hard to find. And Very no one does that it. in New York, That's I think. Right. Of course, was doing cassoulet, escargot. Like your grandma. <laughs> no, it's an escargot thing. Very, very French classic. And then they opened the Benoit 2.0 with a new chef. was a big challenging. But we kept some classic ones, and the modern came in also. More feminine touch. Because the chef was a woman. Okay, let's let's talk about this now. So this is already breaking so many traditions, right? Classic French bistro, Benoit, Alain Ducasse. And you come and you're working for a woman who was the executive chef, who became the executive chef. Mm -hmm. What was her name? What was it like in that kitchen? You started to talk about a feminine touch emerging. So her name is Laetitia Waba. She's still the chef over there. And it was... Like going back to the star Michelin, but without this pressure and this this stress I had before. But at the same time, you bring the technique because we have a lot of technique in France, like delicatesse, and then we could create a new dishes, bring a lot of femininity on it. 
play around the flavor. And as us, she included me and my other sous chef at the time, Safa, very, very much in the creativity part. Wonderful. Now, is it an all-woman kitchen at this point? No more now. Okay. It was at the time. Mm-hmm. We tell, was like only woman at the lead. Tell me about some of the dishes. And you must have really been very excited to have the opportunity to, to create new items for the menu. I mean, does anything feel really particularly feminine? And do you actually believe that there is a difference between men's food and women's food? That's a very big argument. We've been talking about it for decades. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I think now I mean, the men's food and women's food, men start to add a lot of femininity, let's say, in the dishes. But you can see if you compare the dishes from before, for example, at Benoit and the dishes from now, how the dishes are plates, uh, flour on it, color bright. It's That's the feminine part for me. It feels so. Uh, it feels lighter, yeah. Uh, more, uh, more thoughtful, fresh. fresher, beautiful colors, uh, even some flowers. And if they're not literally flowers, it feels like a flower. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but still lots of bold flavors. Yeah, it's still everything is very tasteful. But yeah, it's a bring a little uh, lightness or delicatess in the dishes. Even in the classic dishes, you can. The way you finish the plate, the way you finish everything, you can bring a bit of delicatesse, precision on the dishes. Mm. Everything mm-hmm. is not supposed to be only... Eyes is very important when you eat. Right, the presentation, the delicacy. Mm-hmm. For my part, if I see something, even if it's delicious, but doesn't give me appetite with my eyes, you don't want to eat it. Right, so you you're an artist. You need to be <laughs> tasty and pretty. That's the other part. Be both at the same time. So this is this is the feminine mystique to cooking, to be both of those things. Uh-huh. So her name was Leticia, and she's the was the executive chef at Benoit, and she still is. When did you feel you started to find your own voice in the kitchen in terms of your own food, your creations, your confidence? When did that happen? It's still a bit stressful sometimes. You never know if you're going to create something at I use only one to imagine it like this, so people are going to receive it as you imagine it. That's always a question. You, always. You can never know until the public, the customer, tell you yes or no. That's a bit challenging part, even more when you are a young chef, because we always copy the dishes of others. We reproduce. Then at Benoit, there was a different part. It's we create together. We always sit at so the table is like, okay, everyone bring your ideas. And then it starts a big discussion like, oh, yeah, your ideas with my ideas. And then we're going to combine it. And let's, you know, it's like it changing. And then you test. Then I remember all the kitchen could sit down, test. Everyone doesn't matter because everyone has a palette. Everyone can give an opinion. Because so it the- felt very collaborative. Which might be a little different from an all male kitchen, right? I think maybe this is one of the big points of difference, perhaps. Uh, I mean, in the kitchen I was working before, it's like star machine chef. I was not sous chef there, but they don't ask you really your opinion. Mm. The chef mm-hmm. gives a lead with the sous chef at the time, and that's a lead. You follow, you reproduce, you excel it because at the end, it's always a cook who cook. 
He's never <laughs> the chef who cook. Yes. We never forget that. He's only the cook who cook. I think most people don't realize that, right? Yeah. The chef is really more of the kind of director-producer. Exactly. And then the cooks cook. And then the cook cooks. So you're excellent at the cooking, but you are, you, they don't teach you to create. That's the scary part because when we teach her to reproduce, reproduce, but then you have to get your own voice, that's the most scary because you never know. Do I'm doing right? Do I'm crazy? Do I go too far? You know <laughs> what I mean? You learn how to assemble the produce in your head. Sometimes I don't need to test to know it's going to work. Yes, that's Because you know. You do know the way a musician composes music. They don't really even have to hear it. They hear it in their head. And I think a great chef can do that with their palate. But ultimately, you want to taste, make sure you, yeah. you didn't put too much salt. And I love what you said before, Lucille, about going too far, because... I think uh, creativity can be a weapon in either the wrong hands or sometimes even for young chefs, right? Because there's a tendency to want to kind of do exciting food and prove yourself. So clearly, Lucille, you started to have a sense of empowerment in this wonderful kitchen at Benoit, very supported by your executive chef, who was a woman who gave you a lot of uh, creativity and support. And then you become, at a very young age, the executive chef of Le Coq Rico. Now, how did that come about? First is very challenging. It's very scary because <laughs> it's already not always easy to be the executive sous chef, for example, as a woman, be respected. People listen to you in the order or the respect the thing you are doing or the technique. I think I put that to the team before even I get a chef. So that was a good part. My team was already respecting me because they know I worked very hard. So that was a good part. I mean, you modeled that for them. You didn't have to tell them. They saw you work. Yeah, they and saw they me the work you. before mm -hmm. I get to chef. Before I get chef. So that was a good part. They respect me before that. And it's a very busy restaurant. Many covers. Right? Yes. The challenging part is not the managing. It's not the let's say the organization on the back because this part you do it when you're executive sous chef. It's easy. The part is when the customer understands, oh, now this is a new chef. Oh, she's young and she's a woman. <laughs> oh, they change the menu. All that classic, some goes out and now you have new dishes. But why we have new dishes now? You know what I mean? Right. It's like always the question, is right. it good enough? Is it good? Is it That's the stressful part because how you receive the comment from the people? Are they going to like it? Not. That's a stressful part because part of the team, they respect me. So that was a easy way, let's say. And I was leading the kitchen when the chef wasn't here. Then people was not expecting me to be the chef. So it was a different, you received different information after. It evolved and you evolved, clearly. And now you have great creativity too. You did change a lot of the menu. And so what kind of new dishes did you put on that you could really put your your stamp on, your name? So we put new dishes. We try to stay on the poultry side, but we try also to open a little bit more to attract more people, to have more choice for the people when they come. It's a poultry restaurant. Most of the people come to eat the beautiful bird. But we want also to open the mind saying, oh, today you want to eat a chicken, but tomorrow maybe you don't want but you want to come to see us because the ambiance, because uh, we're, the service, because the cocktail are amazing, because the side are amazing, because the appetizer are amazing. 
So that was a, also a challenging part. Just so you know, Lucille, I had been there once and everything you said is true. <laughs> it was a delightful experience. When did you win there? I guess, you know, I didn't realize this, but you were the chef. You See? must have just become the chef. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah? Yes. No, so one of the dishes, uh, I put many dishes on the menu, but one I put is, for example, appetizer with uh, escargot. We say snail for you, escargot for us. Right. It's uh, escargot fricassé with uh, spinach, tomatoes, garlic. Then we put a foam of garlic. Wow. Poached eggs and um, croustillant with almond and garlic dried. And one is one of the dishes I like because it brings me back to my technique. Yes. He has a bit of uh, all the technique I like, but at the same time, still accessible to everyone. Wow. That sounds really inspired. Yes, this idea of the, the escargot fricassee with a garlic foam. And this croustillant, I don't speak French yeah, very well, croustillant. is, is um, like a pastry, a very thin pastry. It's like a nougatine. It's like nougatine. Like wow. sugar, almond, and uh, dry garlic. <laughs> it brings a bit sweetness you and you have creative. the garlic, but not the strength of the garlic, you know. Yeah, yeah. So one you cannot speak after. <laughs> mm, I think I have to run back and have that immediately. So that's an appetizer? That's one of the appetizers. Okay. Give us a couple. You're making me, uh, my mouth water. So give me some more so ideas. So we are doing for now the chicken lemon. Was most of the recipe I was doing for my staff, actually. It's like chicken cooked with the white one, lemon, black olive, thyme. Mm. It's very summery, very fresh. I it's, think people like it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's very fresh. I'm thinking to change it for the winter with something like with no, cider no, no. and apple. Okay, that yeah, you good need too. to change. You need to have changing. <laughs> it's it will be a bit classic, but at the same time, it's not classic because I don't know if I ate it somewhere. But for me, it was a very good thing to eat with the staff, for example. And I consider if the staff enjoy it, we can. You know what? I'm. You need just to adapt the produce. And what kind of chicken did you use? Were the chicken parts? Was it white meat or dark meat, or was it? Always a part of the dark meat and the white meat. One of each. You always have one of each. That sounds wonderful. Okay, give me a few more ideas. And I'm, you know, I'm really learning a lot about you just by listening to you talk about food and hearing the wonderful dishes you have on the menu at Le Coq Rico. <laughs> no, right now we do a tomato tartare, which mm. is with the heirloom tomato, which is very fresh, very seasonal, with um, basil pesto. That's, for example, is one of the things remind me to my Spanish grandma because... When we was at the table, she was making a tomato salad with a shallot, sherry dressing, because it's from Spain, the sherry dressing. Yes. So it's a very traditional thing. At the end of the bowl, you have always this juice with the tomato and the sherry and the dressing on it. Yes. So she was pouring it on her glass and drinking it. Oh, and you know, uh, that became not that exact rendition, but this idea of tomato water, which was actually kind of the, the drippings of the fresh tomato. Mm. That's exactly that. And you have the seasoning of the vinegar. So it's like very uh, healthy at the same time and very refreshing. You have a little bit of the taste of the shallot inside. I really love this. So when we do the tomato, <laughs> I really love this. So when we do the tomato salad, I decide to put a shot of this juice on the side. And oh. I, when we serve it, we explain to the customer, okay, at the end of your salad, you have to, you have to drink it as a shot because it will clean you. But at the same time, you will continue to eat a bit of the tomato salad. That is really And for beautiful. me, it reminds me when we was at the table and she was pouring the juice on her glass and drinking it. Mm. 
This is so beautiful. And and it really is making me feel that this food is rather feminine. It has this, all of the things you said before about light and colorful and thoughtful and a connection to your past, your French and your your Spanish roots. So beautiful. Tell me about, are you also very involved in the, the desserts and that part of the menu as well? I did some desserts. I'm lucky because in France I have some training in pastry. Of course you do. And bakery. Everything. And bakery. <laughs> so we do the bread every day. Oh, freshly you make bake. Wow. Mm. That's a very nice one. And I really like to do bread because I think the texture when you have the dough and the flour is fresh, is relaxing. Working dough is very relaxing. Is it a particular style of bread you're doing? Are you doing sourdough or, or whole wheat? White or bread. Just a, a kind of a white baguette. crusty. A baguette. Uh-huh, okay. A baguette. <laughs> For the dessert, we did uh, the last one we put on the menu was a melon pearl. So we have honeydew and cantaloupe. We make pearl of it. Tiny, very labor intensive. Tiny little pearls of honeydew and, and cantaloupe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we mix all the pulp left and we make a juice with that. To, do, to serve it with, and a coconut lime uh, sorbet. And we finish with uh, herbs, which is very interesting. I really like it. It's lemon balm. I don't know if a lot of people know this. It's like a lemony, a bit sweet herb, which it's is very wonderful. common for me in France. It's like growing like a bad one that is very <laughs> flavorful. It's not it's citric, but it's not aggressive, and you have a little sweetness on it. So it brings some freshness to the melon also. It sounds wonderful, but it sounds way too healthy. Do you have a little cookie or something to go with that? Yeah, <laughs> we pastry? do a very healthy one, like <laughs> chocolate fondant with vanilla ice cream, which is not very... <laughs> <laughs> very American. <laughs> yeah. Now, this winter, we did the Bûche de Noël. Ah. So the Christmas log with the chestnut, chocolate... That is less healthy, <laughs> but it's also very good. <laughs> will you do it again this Christmas? Because I, no one makes that anymore, so I'll definitely come. I will do it again, but I don't know yet if I will do the same flavor. Of course, you'll change But it. I love chestnuts. I love chestnuts in the winter. I think when you have chestnut cream and it's well done, it's very, very nice. Fantastic. So when we come back, Lucille, I'd love to talk a little bit more about food, but also to talk about advice you would give to young women who want to become chefs. So that's up next. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Lucille, so it sounds like it was a great opportunity, but a great challenge to walk into a restaurant where there was a male chef before you, a restaurant that was well-known, many stars, lots of buzz in New York, and to fill those shoes. So are you feeling very empowered now? Yes, but at the same time, I want to keep it low because I want to be, to prove myself. And I want to prove that even if we change, we change for better. And I want people to to come to see the fresh things. Because people sometimes are scared in New York, like, oh, it's a changing, so it's no good no more. Mm. It's not the case. You just have to see the new fresh thing and then you're going to get an addict. Wonderful. So you're in a leadership position in this fabulous restaurant in New York. Do you have a philosophy or something you'd like to accomplish in the coming months? I would like to have people coming and not be scared of the changing 
to see what we have new, fresh. And I think people will, uh, will love it. We are working in a kitchen bar, so I contact with a lot of customers. And every time they say, oh, it's a woman leading. Oh, you do amazing. It's a very calm kitchen, but you are leading it and they all follow you like they need to. And I think all these new things, they need to don't be scared of the changing. So, Lucille, you're now in this amazing position, real leadership position, being a role model to so many women. So I'm curious, who were some of the women who were so inspiring to you? I know you mentioned your grandmothers and the woman who was the executive chef at Benoit. But are there other women we should know about or even cookbook authors that you loved, you know, their work? I'm just so curious about other women that were important to you. I have a lot of respect for all the chefs who opens the door for us. We are in the easy position, let's say, because the generation before me had the very hard time. Uh, Anne-Sophie Pick, Stephanie Lecolette, Hélène Daros, they didn't have the same luck as us. Even if it was a very few women in the kitchen, they was alone. <laughs> yes. And they have to fight for that. And because they get recognized as much as OEA in USA, Dominique Ren or Melissa Rodriguez at El Posto, in France is a very machist word. And this woman opened the door for us. So my generation, even if it's not easy, we get almost applauded for what we do when they was not at my age. So that's a very... That's very, very gracious of you yes. to uh, say that and feel that. Are you the kind of person who sits up in bed at night and reads cookbooks? Not that much. I read a lot of magazine cook, more than cookbook. Mm -hmm. We have a, a lot of magazine in French. We was like running to find out because they speak most about Star Michelin Chef and you get very addictive to know the <laughs> stories of each of them. We do like a mercato. You know what the mercato? Is in that... football is when they turn around the player from team to team. Yeah. So it's the same with the French chef and pastry chef. Every year or every three years, you have a turnaround in the Star Michelin in France. So everyone wants to know where went him, where does he go, when was a new restaurant. Everyone is aware of that. It's like that's so the great. newspaper. <laughs> but it is addictive. And that's why people love hearing chefs' stories. And that's why you're here today, because I was so interested to hear yours. What advice do you have for a young woman today to get into the industry? Because it is a little bit easier, right? Some of the stigma has gone for women chefs. So what would you suggest? Cooking school or just working for a great chef if you can do it? Uh, probably leaving your country might be good to get more experience. So what, what advice do you have? First, I would say culinary school or not, you need to be sure you're passionate about it because it means long hours. It means hard work. You're going to have days you don't want to do it no more. You want to abandon <laughs> everything. Sometimes you lose a little bit of the peps and you're like, Okay, why do I do this? Why do I work 16 hours in a day? <laughs> For us in France, it was like this. But then when you make a dish, when you cook, you know, when you make something and you make it well, you are proud. Even if no one see you most of the time in the kitchen because you're on the back, we are proud of ourselves. What we learn, what the technique we learn. I will say, curious school is important. But if you're not passionate, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can go in a restaurant, I learn from scraps. 
if you want to do it, you can do. I'm I'm really sure that if you want to do it, you can do it. What other qualities do you think someone has to have? So passion, obviously, it's long hours, it's hard work, it's hot. You don't always get paid very well. <laughs> but uh, what other qualities? Maybe being a team player, or what yeah. do you think? Being a team player is very important because. It's like you cannot do things by yourself. Mm. You always need someone else to be with you or to help you or to make you evaluate. You need other people. You cannot be alone in your world because you will never evaluate whatever in whatever industry you work for. Then you need to be stubborn a little. You have to be a little stubborn? You you have to be stubborn. Okay. Because when we (laughs) tell you you cannot, you will make it if you are stubborn because you decide then, yes, you can. And I'm hearing this is maybe a quality that you uh, like very much about yourself. <laughs> I'm not sure it's always a quality, <laughs> but yes, it's something. It's something I learned my first job. One guy was very. It was a few weeks I was there, like very beginning, first time in a two-star Michelin, seventeen years old, and the guy was like thirty years old, very very rude, hmm. very sexist. And first I went to see the chef and said, I cannot work like this. Good for you. I will quit. Mm. And then like maybe 15 minutes after, I told him, no, no, forget about what I say. He's going to be the one leaving. I'm not leaving. (laughs) (gasps) Fantastic. And (laughs) because I say, okay, if you abandon now, for what do you do all this? Because you never know when you're 17, if it's a good path you choose or not. It's always a question, but I was like, no, it will be the one leaving someone has to leave, not me. So it sounds like you always had a kind of confidence, which is really have a coming character. through. Let's it's, say it's great. I know that the reason you cook, because I read this somewhere, is that you just want every dish to make people happy that you make. So what I'm really curious about is what makes you happy? What dish makes you the happiest? If you could choose one. You have always thing you love to cook. You have always thing you don't really appreciate. For example, I love to cook scallops because when you see it, you can see it is perfectly coloration when it's on the pan one side, and when you start to see the little brown circle around the scallop when it's on the side of the pan, and after it's like you need to have it nacre. You cannot have it overcooked because if not, it's not the same taste. You have to be careful. All the thing which is more challenging to cook, like a piece of meat, like a rack of lamb, you have always a suspense. You cannot overcook it. <laughs> so that's the most challenging because when after you cut and it's very nice, the temperature you want it to, then you're happy because like, yeah, this one is nice. So that's what makes you happy. And is there a particular dish that you just love to eat just because you love it? I will say something very weird, but it's something my mom does. But maybe because I miss her a lot also. It's, uh, we call it uh, pasta in the oven with my family. It's just macaroni pasta with mushroom, tomato, bacon, and cover of cheese and grated. Because my mom, every time we are all of us, like the five of us, my sister, my brother, my dad, and me, (laughs) we want that. It's your birthday. What do you want to eat? Pasta in the oven. It's simple, but it's our dish. We know we eat when we are together. I am so glad I asked. That sounds delicious. So pasta in the oven, 
pasta baked in the oven with the family is the name oh. of the dish. Yeah, that's a dish. It's very simple. It's nothing but it's just because we are always together. Well, can I just tell you that I would absolutely love to have a little ramekin of that next to my perfectly <laughs> cooked roast chicken the next time I go to the Cocorico, and I empower you to put this on the menu. This sounds fantastic. Thank you. So, Lucille, earlier you mentioned a wonderful dish called poule au pot. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it is uh, the recipe you brought is your legacy recipe. So why is this your legacy recipe? So it's my legacy recipe because my grandma used to do it every winter and she's still doing it, actually. And it's, I love dishes will bring family together. For me, that will make us happy because in France, the culture is very important to eat together. So it's why we have so much dishes we share. And that is one of them. It warm you up in the winter. You eat first the soup. Then you eat the chicken with the vegetable. You have all the flavor because in France we have the chicken like we do at the Coquico. So very flavorful. You have a bit of the fat in the chicken. So all this bring me memories of all the winter we spent there. And would you put that dish on your menu at Le Coquico? Or is it a little too homey? It's a possibility, but it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit homey, but it's the thing we do for the family. <laughs> because I do a lot of dish for the family, what it reminds me of my uh, childhood or for my family. I consider that whatever I used to eat is perfect for us because we do sharing also. Let's say the pulopo will be a bit tricky because it should be a dishes in two, two service. Mm, but there's something very nice about that, right? <laughs> Had the soup first or the the consomme and then and then the chicken. And mm -hmm. I think it might work well in your restaurant. But you said something else that's really lovely that you cook for the family. And I think at that moment you meant your kitchen staff. Yeah. Staff meals. So that's something else that makes kitchens very addictive uh, because you really do feel like you're part of a big family. Yeah. So thank you. So one last question that I ask everyone of my guests is what does one woman kitchen mean to you? I think it's never one woman kitchen because it's always all your past coming with you, never, no matter what. So for me, it's my family. It's very important for me where I'm from. So you bring everything, everything, all what you learn, all the chef who inspire you because each of my chef is my chef. Even if I see Letitia Roy by in the street, you can ask her. <laughs> She's still chef for me. I call her chef. She ate it, but she's still <laughs> chef. <laughs> because all these people make you who you are, and all that make me who I am, starting by Philippe Revalet to her, it's that will make me what I'm a chef now. That is so beautiful. And what I'm really hearing from you, and I think one of the reasons you love this industry so much too, it's about respect. There's so much respect that, you know, you have to the people who came before you. And I have a feeling this is the way the people who are in your kitchen feel about you. A lot of respect. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for joining us on One Woman Kitchen. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you, Lucille. And thank you for joining me and Lucille in my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. 
And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.